Hi, I'm Katie. And I'm Dr. Cubitt. We're going beyond the barn. Come join us on this journey as we bust equine and livestock nutrition myths and interview some of the most intriguing experts in the country. We'll go behind the scenes of how premium Western quality forage is grown and brought to your favorite farm and ranch retail store. We're so glad you're here. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Barn. Dr. Cubitt, it is good to have you back in the studio today. I am excited to be back. Before we get started today, we're going to be discussing nutritional deficiencies in horses and when you need to worry. Um, and so we're going to talk about all things nutrients today. But before we get started, Dr. Cubitt, what can you share with our listeners just so they're better prepared for today's conversation? Really, it's whether you're listening to our podcast or you're doing your research on the internet or you're at a seminar, make sure that you're discussing your particular case with your veterinarian and your nutritionist, because what we're going to talk about, these are all broad, a little bit more generalized, and maybe it, it won't specifically pertain to your exact situation. So just make sure that you're working with your particular professionals before making large changes in, in your horse's program. Excellent. Dr. Kibit, I'm excited to talk about today's topic because I know that we've been working together for what the last five years, I think now. Um, and I feel like we haven't really dug deep and got into this topic in a lot of the things we've worked on. And so I think this will be a really great conversation today. I think so too, but I, I also just want to caution people that we come up with these questions and we're going to go back and forth and answer these about, you know, what certain nutritional deficiencies look like. But you have to remember, if you can visualize in your mind a spider's web and all of the nutrients, minerals, vitamins, you know, macronutrients like protein, energy, they're all around the edge and they're all interconnected. So when you change one, you're most likely affecting something else. So again, don't make drastic changes without talking to an expert first. Absolutely. And I think that's a really good thing for people to keep in mind as they listen to today's conversation, because it's very intricate um, details that go into balancing nutrients. And so that's a that's a good thing to keep on the forefront of our minds as we go through today's conversation. So let's get started with when we are feeding our horses, what are the six essential types of nutrients that are required for horses to actually survive and be healthy? Well, I'll start out with correct use of terminology. And you'll hear when, when people are talking about nutrients or, or minerals or vitamins, um, they use the term essential and non-essential. Typically, when you use the term essential, in this conversation, it is that the horse cannot make it in their body, can't be synthesized by, by bacteria, or can't be created in the horse's body. It needs to be um, fed to them. They need to consume it as part of their diet. So I'll just put that out there first. And as we go through, I'll kind of talk to you about which things are essential. So when you hear me use the term essential versus non-essential, non-essential doesn't necessarily mean the horse doesn't need it, but it means that they can make it in their body if all of their systems are working correctly. That being said, back to your question, the six things that are really, really important to horses that they absolutely need. When we're talking about nutrition, we talk about carbohydrates, fat, uh, protein, vitamins, and minerals. 
Uh, but really, I put water at the beginning of that because you can survive without food for a lot longer than you can survive without water. So water is absolutely paramount. Um, and then we talk about carbohydrates. Now, a lot of people might be thinking, why is she saying carbohydrates? My horse is overweight and has insulin resistance. He can't have carbohydrates. Carbohydrates, remember, get broken into two distinct categories. The what we call non-structural carbohydrates, which are your sugars and starches, and you are correct. There are a lot of horses that don't need high amounts of sugars and starches in their diet. But the other category of carbohydrate is those structural carbohydrates or fiber. The horse absolutely cannot live without fiber. It's what it's designed to uh, consume in large quantities and break down and get actually all of these other nutrients out of that fiber. So remember that the term carbohydrate does not synonymously mean sugar and starch. Right. And for anybody that's wanting to and hasn't yet, head back to episodes five and six because Dr. Cupid and I talk about that quite a bit. Um, so that'll be a great resource if they haven't listened yet. So then in your experience with working, when working with clients, how common are nutritional deficiencies in horses? You know, I'm sure I, I think that nutritional deficiencies are actually very common, but severe nutritional deficiencies are not very common. Um, so for example, one of the symptoms of selenium deficiency and also toxicity, one of the worst case symptoms is actually that they're, they'll start bleeding around the coronet band where the, the kind of hair meets the hoof. That's a very severe deficiency before you're going to get to that point. So that in itself is rare. But minor nutritional deficiencies, let's say you're meeting 80% of the horse's requirement, you probably aren't noticing anything drastic in your horse. You're not noticing that its hair is falling out or, or that its skin is flaky, but he's just not 100%. And maybe you're not noticing anything at all, but in the wintertime, his immune system isn't functioning at 100%. He's not getting over a cold or a snotty nose as fast as the other horses, or his hoof quality isn't great, or his hair coat isn't great. Um, so I think that nutritional deficiencies, minor nutritional deficiencies are very common. Severe deficiencies deficiencies are not very common, if that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. Do there tend to be certain types of horses that might be more prone to nutrition, nutritional deficiencies? Or is that more just just management and feeding the appropriate amounts? I'm gonna say <laughs> no. But then I could say, okay, the ultra elite performance horse, just like an ultra elite athlete is probably not going to have as many nutritional deficiencies as a backyard pleasure horse, right? Because that ultra elite horse has nutritionists and farriers and veterinarians and the owner and the trainer, and everybody is dialed into every little aspect of that horse's kind of management and training. So little and little things make huge differences at that level of competition. But for our backyard horse that maybe just a weekend rider, or maybe you go to a, a hunter show on the weekend, but it, it's more for pleasure and fun. Those horses actually are more susceptible to this kind of minor nutritional deficiency because really there's only one nutrient that you can see in your horse and that's calories. That's the energy. Um, and if you're, and it's not necessarily an a a nutrient per se, because it comes from energy or calories come from several different nutrients. But you can see if your horse is fat or thin. 
that's about all you can see. So uh, you can't see if your horse is deficient in copper or zinc. And that's why I say it's it's pretty common for horses to be um, minor, have minor deficiencies because we're feeding them based on whether they're fat or thin. You know, if he's if he's got a good body condition, then I'm going to feed him a little less. If he's thin, I'm going to feed him a little bit more. Um, and then we maybe don't always think about if there are other issues that are happening that they could be correlated or related to uh, the diet. And that's exactly what happens. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that about the immune system or he's got a snotty nose or it's hair code or hoof quality. And in my line of work, people are always asking me, well, my horse doesn't have a great hair coat. What supplement can I feed to address that? Or he doesn't have great hooves. What? Tell me a hoof supplement to feed. Um, and typically before I recommend a specific supplement. I want to look at the whole diet and look holistically. Is he getting everything he needs? We'll start there. And if if the horse is getting a totally balanced, perfect diet, but he still has just genetically doesn't have great hooves, then we'll look at supplementing with additional nutrients that I know will benefit the hoof, for example. Most often though, when your horse presents with yeah, he's a bit muscle sore, he's not recovering well, hair coat not great, hoof quality not great. If I balance the diet and make sure they're getting all of the nutrients that they need in forms that they can utilize, that usually corrects it because they were just in that kind of mild nutrient deficit. I feel like that's like a common thing and that could probably be the same for people in general too. Yeah. I was just going to say, I 100% agree that it is in horses as well. And, you know, just to, you and I talk all when we're, putting these podcasts together and we, uh, how we want them to go. And we have worked really hard to try and make this um, casual. We want to give our audience good information, but in a manner that they can understand it. I want to put out there that even myself, like I'm giving you all of this nutritional advice for your horse. I have a nutritionist for myself. So everybody needs a coach. Don't be, don't feel like there's something wrong because you need to have a nutritionist on your team or you don't know all of the answers for feeding your horse and you're, you're trying to do better. We're all, everybody needs a coach. That's my point. Right. No, and I think that's great. And I think that perspective of just always being willing to learn uh, and improve, I think is, is a really good approach for that. So are there some common reasons that you see that horses do become deficient in certain nutrients? Um, I think the main reason is what I've already touched on is that the only nutrient you can see is calories or energy. And so when my horse looks fat and shiny, um, I will limit what I'm feeding him to maintain that body condition. But if I'm not feed feeding the correct product, then I may be shortchanging him on uh, the vitamins and minerals that he needs. Um, a classic example, I know that we have, you know, best quality forage products in the world, um, but even the best quality forage is going to be, it doesn't matter where you're living, it's going to be deficient in certain minerals. Um, selenium, for example, copper and zinc are always deficient in forages. So we need to find something that is going to... Um, match the forage that we're feeding? What's going, what are we going to be able to feed that's going to complement the forage that we're utilizing? And the great thing about Stanley is you don't have to add a whole lot um, to, to make up for those deficiencies. Right. 
No, that's great. And uh, you went right into the next question that I wanted to talk to you about. So um, you mentioned copper, selenium and zinc. And of course, it is very dependent, um, geographically related, but are there any other nutrients that tend to be more commonly in- deficient with ho- in horses or are those kind of the big three? Um, when it comes to what, it, and I always look at forage first, what am I not getting out of the forage? And across the board, I can guarantee you every single time zinc, copper, and selenium will always be deficient. Except if you live in some random places in the Dakotas, they actually have a lot of selenium in the soil, um, but they don't make a lot of hay out there, so... Okay. So that doesn't help us. <laughs> You're probably okay. Uh, we just did a road trip and we drove through there. They grow a lot of sunflowers and a lot of cows, <laughs> not a lot of hay. So anyway, they're, they're going to be, um, no matter where you are in the world, everybody always tells me, oh, my area is deficient in selenium. And I'm like, yeah, so is the rest of the world. Yeah. Yeah. You're not alone. That's good to know. Um, And I know that we'll probably touch on some of these as we go through the rest of the discussion today, but are there certain nutrients that tie up other nutrients so they're not able to either be absorbed or utilized within the body? And, you know, this kind of this question really leads back to what I said in the beginning is visualize the spider web and everything is interconnected everything. So we know that say calcium and phosphorus go together, zinc and copper go together, vitamin E and selenium go together. We've been, we've had that drilled in our heads that they go together. But did you know that lysine can affect the calcium absorption in the gut and calcium and it can increase if you have enough lysine in your diet. Uh, There's a lot of other things it will do, but it has a relationship with calcium absorption and it decreases urinary calcium losses. That's not something that you think about every day when you think about lysine, which is an amino acid or protein. So just always know that when you alter one thing, you are also altering several other things. So you have to be prepared for what what's going to happen with that. Yeah. 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 Don't. So, you know, in, when I've had people say, well, I, I feed my horse, um, individual, I I have little buckets on the wall and he's going to, he can selectively choose what he needs and he's going to, they're going to be copper in one and zinc in another and selenium in another, and he's going to lick exactly what he needs. Um, they can't do that. Horses do not know how to self-regulate anything other than salt and only if they're not exercising. Um, and some things taste better than others. So just like little kids, they're going to eat the thing that tastes better, not because they need it or not. Um, so, and, and when you do that, you're really throwing off the balance of, of, of everything else. So, right. And so you mentioned a little bit about lysine and its relationship with calcium. So how is lysine used or what is the function of lysine in the horse's body? So when we think about lysine, you know, we, we start out, we think about protein and protein is absolutely critical. I mentioned that it was one of those, uh, kind of broader categories of something that was really important for the horse. When you break protein down, we look at what the building blocks of protein, which are amino acids. And there are a lot of different amino acids. And this is where I'll use the term essential in the correct term. Um, Lysine is an essential amino acid. It needs to be fed in the diet. We also know that it's the first limiting amino acid, which means that it doesn't matter if you have 150% of all the other amino acids 
included into the diet. If you only have 50% of the amount of lysine that a horse needs, they will only be able to use 50% of all the other amino acids. So the amount of lysine and the, the amount of lysine that is requirement that is being met in the horse's diet dictates the use of every other amino acid. So the other amino acids are very important also, but lysine is the only one that we currently have a, an accurate uh, requirement for. Methionine and threonine are the other two that we have pretty good idea on the requirement. When it comes to all of the other amino acids, we know that they're really important and it's something that we're working on. Um, one of my good dear friends, actually, I would say that she's one of the world's leading experts on protein metabolism in horses, and she works at the University of Kentucky, and this is her life's work is um, all things protein and horses and, and really amino acids. That's awesome. That's good to know how important lysine is in the horse's body and how it's utilized and everything. So what happens then when you're looking at all of those within the body and we have a protein deficiency, what happens? What signs are we going to observe with our horses? Or we may not, like you said, it's not going to be super obvious, but what are some of the signs that we've learned to associate with a protein deficiency? Um, and protein deficiencies, uh, we now I'll say that if your horse isn't getting enough protein, um, then we'll definitely see muscle wasting. That doesn't mean that mus that protein deficiency is the only thing that causes muscle wasting. So lack of top line, for example, is a common um, problem that we're always trying to correct in, in a lot of horses. Lack of protein can be a cause, but it's not the only cause. So one of the pitfalls we fall into is, well, I know that that A can cause B, and so I just keep doing, giving them more of A over and over and over. I give them more protein, give them more protein, but it's not fixing my problem. It's not giving me a better top line. Okay, well, then try something else because it's not the only cause for, pro for, for muscle wasting. Uh, things like Cushing's disease, aging, uh, other metabolic syndrome, these can all cause muscle wasting as well. But the other thing I think is important to bring up is where do you get it from? Um, and when I think about protein, that's why I always encourage people to look at the quality of protein, i.e. the amino acids, um, because I can grind up chicken feet and give you a 14% protein feed, but there's no way you want to feed that to your horse. Um, good quality proteins for horses are going to come from legumes. Alfalfa is a legume. Right. So then let's talk about what an energy deficiency looks like symptoms and maybe how to avoid that. Yeah. And you know, we, we've chatted about that one several times already. First thing you're going to notice is your horse is losing weight. He's not getting enough calories to, to support all of the kind of life functions, all of the, the biochemical pathways and all of the processes that are occurring in his body just to keep him alive. He's using all his energy to do that, you know, pump, make his, his heart pump, um, give him enough energy to fuel his muscles so that he can actually move and he can breathe. Um, he needs additional energy to lay down tissue and fat to, to be in the body condition that you want. So if he's not getting enough energy. First thing you will notice is he's losing weight. If they're not getting the right type of energy, now this is where it gets a lot more complicated because 
energy isn't energy isn't energy. Um, you know, the type of calories that you feed, whether you're feeding fat calories or sugar starch, kind of uh, simple sugar calories, they're going to be used by different pathways in the body. So the fat calories, we use those in, um, if we break that down, the pathway uh, utilize, that utilizes fat for an energy source supplies the energy in a long, slow release kind of fashion. So you think about a, an endurance horse, they're going to use fat as their primary calorie source. But then your sugars and starches, they're going to supply the um, energy pathways that give the muscles quick energy. So anything like barrel racing or sprinting, those horses need that type of energy. So an energy deficiency, your horse might look fat and be in beautiful condition, but be a slow racehorse. Now that could just be because he's got terrible breeding or he doesn't have a good trainer, or it could be that he's got an energy deficiency. He's not getting the right type of energy. So now, now we got all complicated with your simple question. <laughs> No, that's, that's wonderful because I think it's important that we look at all, all aspects of it because I mean, like you said, we have talked about an energy deficiency for most people just appears to be that, you know, my horse is too thin. Um, but in reality, there are different types of energy and, you know, certain horses need to have the certain supplies of each depending on what they're doing. And so I think that's an excellent point that you brought up there. So and then how do we know if our horse is deficient in magnesium? What are the signs of that? Uh, so magnesium is a hot topic because everybody likes to supplement with magnesium. Um, it's actually not very common that a horse would be deficient in magnesium. Um, signs of true magnesium deficiency would be nervousness and muscle tremors and, you know, ataxia where their, their mu the muscle tremors get a lot worse. And so they're kind of incoordinated. Like I said, though, it's not very common for a horse to have magnesium deficiencies, but because people read that, oh, these are the signs of magnesium deficiency. Now people are inclined to, um, over supplement uh, magnesium if they're trying to calm a horse, for example. And I'll just say one thing about calming supplements and, and kind of jumping towards that. Nine times out of 10, horses change their behavior as a pain mechanism, as a response to pain, whether it be bone pain, muscle pain, gut pain. It's usually always pain. There are very few horses that are just crazy and, and need some kind of calming supplement. So before you band-aid that behavior with a calming supplement, like adding a boatload of extra magnesium to the diet, let's dig deeper into what could be causing the change in behavior. Could be a minor, it could be poor saddle fit, could be doesn't like the bridle. Could it, There's so many things that can cause it, but just don't take things at face value. Uh, dig a little deeper. Yeah. Well, for the the sake of the overall health of your horse, it'll it'll catch up when you keep just adding band-aids. Yeah, exactly. And we're all just trying to do the right thing. And so I'm just encourage people if you really want to get to the bottom of it, then maybe it's a little bit more in detail than just, you know, whacking a bit of extra magnesium in the diet and hoping you can dull his senses. Right. And so you touched on this very briefly initially, but what are some of the symptoms that we see with a selenium deficiency, which obviously is one of the more common ones? See, selenium is 
it's one of the harder ones, to be honest. And I would say that it's actually not that common to see selenium deficiency because our listeners are so aware that the world is so deficient in selenium. So everybody's adding extra selenium. But here's the problem. The signs of selenium deficiency and toxicity are the same. So without doing a blood test, evaluating the diet, you might not know which one's causing it. Um, I was speaking with a gentleman recently and he, um, he, yeah, he had the horse was bleeding from the the coronet band. And I said, you know, I, I really, I, because I know what the horse was being fed and the geographic location, I said, I'm going to definitely err on the side that your horse has selenium deficiency, which again, that's a very severe case. Um, but let's just say it was someone who was feeding a, a commercial grain in, in a larger quantity that I know had a very bioavailable source of selenium in it. And maybe they were, you know, the, they were adding an extra selenium supplement and then they were adding another supplement that randomly had selenium in it as well. You know, you've got to be careful when you adding a lot of things to the diet. That's how we end up going the opposite and overcompensating and actually having selenium toxicity. But some other minor things that you'll notice with selenium deficiency, um, they're very photosensitive. So the white bits on the horse, they'll be easily get sunburn. The hair will fall out. Um, they'll bleed along the coronet band and worst case scenario is they just drop dead. So that's terrible. Yeah. So in what way, obviously, I mean, you talked about how energy is like the easiest one to identify whether there's a deficiency or not. But in what way can selenium deficiency go undetected? That's a hard one. Um, usually it doesn't go undetected because the if it's severe enough, um, then the client is going to notice signs in the horse. They're going to talk to the veterinarian. The first thing they're going to do is a blood panel and we're going to look down all of that. And unfortunately, there are a lot of nutrients that you cannot determine in the blood. Um, selenium and vitamin E are actually pretty easy to look at the, the whole body amount in the blood. So it'd be it's easy to do a quick blood test. Okay. And then you briefly mentioned this before earlier as well, but calcium and phosphorus go hand in hand with each other because of the need to have that proper balance um, of that ratio between the two. So what does an ideal ratio look like for horses with calcium and phosphorus? So perfect world, two to one, two parts calcium to one part phosphorus, where you can go as low as one to one. So one part calcium to one part phosphorus. Um, you can go as high as five to one, five parts calcium, one part phosphorus. In animals that are actively using a lot of calcium, like young growing horses or pregnant mares or lactating brood mares, you really want to sit in that two to one, three to one ratio. You can get into the one to one, five to one kind of outlier ratios when you've got horses that are at not doing a lot, like your trail horse, limited exercise type horse. Um, but you never never, never want to have more phosphorus and calcium because what will happen is that will block the uptake of any calcium that is available. And so what we'll see is this is one of those that a calcium is not, you cannot take a blood sample and measure whether the horse has enough calcium. I always say horses are smart. We don't always listen. So if you're not giving your horse enough calcium in the diet or you've got too much phosphorus and it's blocking the uptake of calcium, they will suck calcium out of 
their bones to create this homeostatic, so balanced level of calcium in the bloodstream. So the blood always looks good, even though they're sucking it out of their bones and then they're going to have brittle bones. Um, there's a condition called, we call it big head in Australia, but anyway, um, there's certain plants that have oxalates that will actually bind up calcium in, it, in the diet so they can't absorb it. And so they're sucking it out of their bones and they'll take it out of their nose bones first, those two long bones down their face. And so then they get spongy and swell and the horse looks like he has a big head. You know, there are fancy names for it. I think secondary hyperparathyroid disorder, but they get a big head. It's awful. Oh, man. So... That's obviously with that imbalanced ratio there. So the phosphorus deficiencies, what what happens with a phosphorus de- deficiency then? You know, phosphorus deficiencies, it's kind of the same thing. If you don't have calcium and phosphorus are so absolutely critical for growth, for bone development, even for muscle contraction. Um and, and they just need to work in harmony together. So if you don't have enough phosphorus in the diet, you're definitely going to have negative impacts on bone health. In general. Okay. How can a salt deficiency negatively impact a horse? So to answer that question, what is salt? Salt is sodium and chloride. So if you see it written scientifically, it's Na, which is sodium, Cl, which is chloride, right? So it's two different minerals. And they are what we call electrolytes. Um, And they're really critical in um, muscle contraction and kind of blood staying in. I'm trying to come up with the right words so that your, your blood kind of stays in your body and it's not leaking out. We need to make sure that it's got this, the correct electrolyte balance and pH. And, and that's why we feed electrolytes to horses. So um, an electrolyte deficiency in general and sodium and chloride are the two most critical in any electrolyte. Um, would you, you would notice muscle stiffness, muscle soreness. Um, you'll see it all sometimes when horses get really overheated and they sweat, 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 and they sweat out all their electrolytes. And the, the worst case scenario is they'll just stop sweating altogether. Um, and then that's where we've kind of, we've hit a wall at that point and we need to fix that horse really quickly. But really you'll notice... Um, muscle pain, muscle stiffness, muscle soreness right, would be the outward signs that you will notice. Now, if you had a magic mirror or or window and you could look inside your horse, there is so much happening inside the horse in all of the different biochemical pathways before you ever see any outward symptom. So just know that by the time you see muscle soreness in your horse or bleeding out the coronet band or your horse's hair falling out or whatever the outward symptom is, a whole lot of bad stuff's been happening inside the horse probably for weeks before you ever saw anything. So, so, and you had mentioned that salt is like the one nutrient, I guess, that horses can actually identify and seek out that they might need it in their diet. Yes. Only if they're not exercising. Now, if you're exercising a horse um, and they're sweating a lot, then they won't be able to, what I say, self-regulate. They won't be able to self-consume enough to to put back in what they've sweated out. But 
to that client that was putting little tubs of, you know, cow, copper, zinc and everything, and the horse was just going to lick what they needed. They can do, I do actually recommend that you put salt. Loose salt is the most ideal because horses don't have a rough tongue. So if you can put loose salt in a container in the horse's stall and have it, I say ad lib, available to them at all times, because today it's hot and you rode them and they sweated a lot. So their requirement goes up. This is the thing that, you know, your selenium requirement doesn't change day to day. Your copper requirement doesn't change day to day, but your sodium and chloride requirement, your salt requirement does change day to day based on whether you sweated a lot. Did you drink a lot and in turn urinate a lot? Um, So that's why I like to have salt available to horses all the time. Now, if you you can't do loose salt, then a, a plain white salt block is fine, especially if you have to offer it to horses outside of the stall. And then we even, you know, will supplement additional to horses that are uh, exercising heavily. We can either put salt directly in their feed or feed them an electrolyte. If I'm trying to get horses to drink water, I'll put salt in their feed. I am very hesitant to ever put salt or an electrolyte in the water bucket because then we're tainting the flavor of the water and you can just make the problem worse by stopping them drinking. But I'm going down a rabbit hole. (laughs) No, that's I think that's all good information. So I appreciate that. But just as salt loss can occur from sweating and urinating, so does potassium. So what happens with a potassium deficiency? Same thing. It is an electrolyte as well and even more involved in muscle contraction. And so definitely um, more muscle pain, stiffness if you don't have enough potassium in the diet. Okay. How does an iodine deficiency occur and what are some of the signs with that one? Ooh, so iodine, uh, it's it's usually actually not that common for horses to be deficient in iodine. Um, I am more concerned in practice with iodine excess. So I always steer clear of um, kelp or seaweed derived ingredients in, in feeds or supplements because the iodine content can be so all over the show. It can be really high, really low, but... Um, this is another one, a little bit like the selenium, that the excess and deficiency can be similar. It affects the thyroid hormone. And, um, you know, I think the generic term for it would be goiter. You get this big swelling um, in the neck, and that's called a goiter. It can really affect mare reproduction. Um, so, okay. And so, with it not being as common, I'm guessing is more non essential then. You know they're they're all important in the diet. Yeah, yeah, and they don't they don't make iodine. They have to eat it, but they get plenty of it. Okay, essential then. Okay, can you talk more about zinc and the signs that we might observe with a zinc deficiency? The signs definitely in young growing horses, just like calcium and phosphorus go together. Zinc and copper are, are really important. They go together in cartilage development, bone development. So in your broodmare, pregnant broodmare, growing foals, it's absolutely critical that we have uh, enough zinc and copper in the diet. So just feeding hay is probably not going to cut it, um, even if it's, you know, an alfalfa, which is giving them plenty of protein and it's giving them plenty of uh, calories. We still may need to add a what we would consider a balancer type product to um, supply them with that those other nutrients that would be missing, like the zinc, the copper, selenium. Okay. 
And then, well, you kind of touched on this just a little bit. Copper deficiencies are fairly similar to zinc. Yes. And and if you have more of one or less of one, either way, they're going to interfere with the other one. So we we really don't want to have excess amounts of either copper or zinc. Okay. What does an iron deficiency look like? Well, just like in people, it's anemia. If you don't have enough iron in your diet, um, then you're going to get anemic, which means, you know, iron is really important for building red blood cells, which are going to carry oxygen around the body. The good thing is horses are very rarely deficient in iron. They get We get iron from green leafy vegetables ourselves and horses eat green leafy vegetables. Um, they get it from pasture. They get it from hay. Unlike something like vitamin E, which is we also get from green leafy vegetables. Um, when you make hay, the vitamin E is oxidized by the sunlight. The iron stays there. So very uncommon to see an iron deficiency in a horse. Okay. And now moving into the vitamins, now that you mentioned that, what vitamin tends to be most commonly deficient in horses? Vitamin E, 100%. And, you know, vitamins are what we consider fat-soluble or water-soluble. Now, your fat-soluble vitamins are the ones that they really need to consume in the diet. We've got vitamin A, vitamin E, vitamin D, vitamin D, I think. Um, and then your water-soluble vitamins are your B vitamins, and they can be created by the bacteria that live in the hindgut. And when I say fat-soluble, it means if we think about vitamin E, for example, it is going to be stored in the fat of the animal. So if you think about a horse in the wild, in the springtime, they're consuming a lot more food, they're getting a little extra body fat, um, and they're consuming all that green pasture, and they're absorbing vitamin E, and they're storing it in their fat for use later on in the summertime. They might lose a little weight, the grass dries off, there's not as much vitamin E available, that's fine, we can tap into our, our fat reserves. And in the fall, same thing, we're, we're grazing more fresh green grass and we're getting a little heavier before we go into the winter. Over the winter time, the grass is either non-existent or it's dried off and there's no vitamin E. But again, we're, we're just absorbing it out of our stores in our fat. Our horses, modern day horses, though, very rarely have access to enough pasture. Um, and we're also expecting them to do a lot more exercise and that exercise causes stress, which causes oxidative stress, which vitamin E is an antioxidant, which, so vitamin E is required in much higher amounts in our modern horses than they, it was in wild horses. So even if your horse has access to pasture, it can, it can still be deficient in vitamin E. And when we cut hay, as I mentioned, the sunlight oxidizes that vitamin E. And within about two to three weeks, most of the vitamin E is gone out of forages. Interestingly, we um, sent away some of the Stanley Premium Western Forage alfalfa for testing on vitamin E because when the the, the alfalfa is cut, it's pretty much immediately, because it's so dry out there, it's immediately able to be covered and, and the light is removed from the equation. So the vitamin E in the Stanley alfalfa particular is much higher than alfalfas that we see in other areas that isn't um, kind of managed the same way. 
Right. You and Dr. Duran looked into that a little bit with some testing, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was uh, that was some interesting um, take backs we got from that. So you talked about with horses kind of in the fall being able to store some vitamin E and everything like that. So does that go along with all of the vitamins that are fat soluble? So A, E and D are ones that you're able to kind of put in the body and store and keep around for a, for a little while? Correct. Yes. Okay. So also, if you have a really thin horse that doesn't have enough fat and you're trying to add extra of those vitamins to the diet, then we always recommend adding uh, a fat source to the diet. And then vitamin B consists of a complex of vitamins. And while most don't really appear to cause major concerns with deficiencies, B1 or thiamine can. So what are the symptoms associated with a lack of vitamin B1 in the diet? Oh, so, and again, this isn't something that I see regularly. I can probably say I've never seen this, but you mentioned there there are a whole slew of different B vitamins. You've heard of thiamine and riboflavin and niacin. These are all, you know, when you see them written on a tag, on a feed tag, you might see thiamine and then in parentheses, vitamin B1. Um, they're all involved, I wouldn't say they're all, but the majority of them of B vitamins are involved in carbohydrate metabolism. Um, they're also high in cereal grains. So while the bacteria in the hindgut produce them, B vitamins are also high in, um, in grains. So again, it's very rare for horses to be deficient in B vitamins. The thiamine in particular, I mean, again, I, in all of the research that I've seen and, you know, I, I use the NRC, which is the nutrient requirements of horses. The most recent version is the sixth revised edition. It's put out by the National Research Council. And there's one of these books for all livestock species, but the uh, equine version, I use that as kind of my base for looking at deficiencies and excesses. So if there's a particular nutrient that you want to know more information about, I, I would look that book up. Um, it's a good source. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely a good source. But as far as the deficiencies, I mean, worst case scenario, horses um, have muscle twitches and they will um, lose a lot of weight. They're eating, but they're not getting weight. Um, but I, again, I don't know anybody who's seen that. Right. And then going into vitamin C, I mean, I think vitamin C is something that just in, in the human world, people are more familiar with just in general. But for horses, what signs do we see if there's a vitamin C deficiency? Oh, so vitamin C, again, not one that we add to the diet that often. Now, where, where you will see B vitamins and vitamin C added to diets is those high performance feeds. Because those horses, like I said, that if the, if the hindgut is working correctly and the bacteria are working correctly, then they will be making these B vitamins and vitamin C, um, vitamin K. But in those horses, we know that they're very stressed. We know that the hindgut probably isn't working at 100%. So we will add B vitamins and sometimes vitamin C to those diets. You'll also see sometimes vitamin C added into joint supplements. But vitamin C deficiency actually has not been reported in horses, so a, a true deficiency. Now, we know that vitamin C has benefits. So when you're adding it to a diet, it doesn't mean that you're compensating for a deficiency. We just know 
that, oh, if I add a little bit more, it's an antioxidant and it might help with some of the oxidative stress that's occurring in a joint. I'm not adding it because I thought the horse was deficient. I just know a little bit more. That it'll be helpful. Might help the horse out. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the story with the magnesium as well. We're not adding it because our horses are deficient in magnesium. We're adding it because we do know that if you feed large amounts of magnesium, it will have a kind of calming effect on the horse. But like I said, why is the horse needing a calming product in the first place? So, right. And then I'm guessing vitamin D is a vitamin D. D is an interesting one because vitamin D is very interconnected with calcium and phosphorus and bone health and bone development. Um, So I wouldn't throw that one out and say, oh, it's very rare to see vitamin D deficiency. Most of our horses are stuck in stalls. And, you know, so vitamin D we are getting, you know, from sunlight But if your horse, let's say your horse has been in a stall on a layup and it's not getting a lot of natural sunlight um, and it's got some kind of bone issue, then we we might want to add vitamin D to the diet as well. Also, young growing horses, we definitely need to make sure that we've got correct calcium and phosphorus. Now they're going to get vitamin D. And when you see on the tag, you'll see sometimes sun-cured alfalfa. Now that the sunlight is going to, on that product, is going to allow them to extract more vitamin D. Right. Why is it important to use your oldest hay first? Any product you should be, it's just like any feed store, they're going to rotate and keep um, so that you don't get one product that ends up being, you know, three years old because you keep using the stuff that's six months old. So it's just all about rotating to keep everything fresh. And the older the hay sits, the more dust it's going to collect. The more the particles will just start to break down because it dries out or it's more susceptible to molding depending on the conditions you have it in. Um, So it's really that aspect of it. Also, though, you know, the vitamin content it's it's what is primarily deteriorating the longer the hay sits. Right. So the the vitamin content, especially with E, A, and D, it, the freshest you can get it is usually the m- most ideal. Correct. Perfect. So we have gone quite long on this podcast, but I think we've covered a lot of great information in this. And so I have one last question that I want to ask you, Dr. Cubitt, and that is if we can just leave our listeners with one or two takeaways from this episode, what, what would you like that to be? It would be to emphasize that don't try to fix one thing and think it's only going to affect that. You know, if you're adding, if, if you're adding a lot of extra selenium to your diet, then is it actually being utilized? Uh, have you got enough vitamin E in the diet? If we're adding a bunch of calcium to the diet, are you correcting the amount of phosphorus you're putting in the diet? So don't try to do it alone. Work with a professional, whether that is your veterinarian or a nutritionist, but changing one thing will affect a lot of other things. So that would be my biggest takeaway um, is that you're not just changing one thing, you're really changing everything. Right. It's all just so involved with each other. So yes. 
Thank you, Dr. Cubitt. Um, this has been such a wonderful conversation today. And for our listeners, we want to thank you for being on here and listening to us and invite you to share with us any topics that you want to hear from us about. So please email us at podcast at stanleyforage.com. And if you listen through Apple, we would love to see some reviews from you on there. And um, tell us what you want to hear about. We're here for you. And we're we're here to give you the information that you're looking for. So until next time, thank you so much, Dr. Cubitt. I look forward to the next one. Thanks for listening to the Beyond the Barn podcast by Stanley Forage. We'd love for you to share our podcast with your favorite people and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite listening platform. Until next time, keep your cinch tight and don't forget to turn off the water. (laughs) 